if you really want to make a difference, make sure you're publishing papers and writing grants with Black and Indigenous people of color. If you have the power and prestige, you know, yeah, you could use with whatever institution that you're part of, use it to advocate for racially diverse leadership so that we don't keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. We actually change the path. Hello and welcome to We Persist, a podcast that shares the stories of incredible people from all different backgrounds in the earth, ocean, and environmental sciences. Today we are speaking with Dr. Asmarat Asafau Berhe, the current Ted and Jan Falasco Chair in Earth Science and Geology at the University of California, Merced and a soil biogeochemist studying soils, climate, and the relationships between these things and humans. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Asmarad Asafal Darhe. I'm currently a professor at uh, UC Merced. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. I have been a professor now for um, a little over 11 years. Prior to that, I was a postdoc at the University of California campuses in Berkeley and Davis. And even before that, I did a bachelor's in soil and water conservation from the University of Asmara in Eritrea and a master's in political ecology from Michigan State University and a PhD in biogeochemistry from uh, UC Berkeley. Okay, wonderful. So how did you become involved or interested in the soil sciences and climate and the intersection between those two things? Yeah, so my interest in soil science happened at undergrad. Before I went to college and I started my undergraduate degree, I don't think I knew too much about the science of soils. You know, most people know obviously that food grows in soil for the most part and soil is important for supporting plant production in general uh, plant life i should say in general but beyond that i don't know that i could have told you too much about the science involved in in soil and how soil is critical for maintenance of life in the earth system or even climate for that matter but i think i really got hooked when i was taking an undergraduate uh intro to soil science course at the University of Asmara. And there in particular, I think I was really struck more importantly by how this thing that we take for granted that we walk on every day controls so many important aspects of life in the earth system. Uh, And that life in our planet would just not be a possibility without it. And how, you know, there's also this incredible amount of science that you learn in this context of soils. The reason why this is important is because I've always loved science. I've always knew I was going to go into science, but I was a bit hesitant about doing, you know, biology, chemistry, or physics undergraduate degree because I just didn't think that pure uh, focus on those was as exciting. But once I realized that I could study soils and still study all the different sciences that I'm interested in and how even... Um, they interact in this uh, fabulous medium, um, so that soil, it just became amazingly exciting. Um, the intersection with climate happened later. So when we were an undergrad, uh, we studied a lot about soil and water conservation. So 
as you can imagine, there was a lot of focus on how um, rainfall in particular patterns distribution affected soil health and soil erosion and soil degradation and drought entered into the picture. So there's a bit of climate that was introduced there at the intersection with soil. And climate is one of the five most important factors that regulate soil properties. But then when I moved to the U.S. and started doing my master's and later my master's at Michigan State and later my Ph.D. at Berkeley, now we're talking about after 1998, 99 and 2000, right? So not only was climate change everywhere at the time, but it was, was his a time like it's starting. A lot of people are starting to get uh, more and more interested and, and the science is becoming more mainstream, if you will, in a lot of our discussions. And I think at that point, it was hard not to relate what I was learning with soil because the connections are there, right? I've already spent a lot of time thinking about how soil operates and how soil controls a range of different phenomena. And in my, both in my undergrad and master's and, and research projects that I did it both. So then climate became, I think, a, a part of the, the, you know, puzzle that you just cannot ignore. You can't take it out of the picture and ended up being a pretty big part of my dissertation research too. And since then I've been working on different impacts of climate on soil properties and in particular the ability of soil to take up atmospheric carbon dioxide and regulate the Earth's atmosphere and warming that way. From your childhood to deciding to go to undergraduate, what was your journey there? You said that at undergraduate you discovered your interest in soils. Was that path linear? Like, did you look at university programs and think, oh, a soil? Did you take a class and become interested in it? How did that look? So my interest in soil didn't really, was not the first thing that I thought about, as I mentioned. If you ask me when I was, um, you know, 16, 17, 18, the time I was getting ready to go to college and when I first started college, what I was going to study, I would have told you I'm going to study chemistry as a pre-med. I was pretty set on on a pre-med path um, because, you know, like most people, you're good at school, you do science, you hear a lot about being a doctor, and that was interesting. Um, and and it wasn't until I went to college and discovered soils, um, right, and the science of soils in particular, um, that really got me hooked and changed my direction. But even when I finished my undergrad, there was a moment when I thought about um, whether I'm kind of easily giving up on that medical school dream and whether I should think about it further. And so at one point, I actually started preparing to take the MCAT, taking, you know, practice MCATs and all that, and even volunteered at a hospital. I think it was that volunteering at the hospital that really, really sealed the deal for me, was made it very clear that this is not for me. I'm, I like soils. I'm happy with studying soils. That direction of, you know, seeing the doctors in action in the hospital just made it very, very clear that uh, I made a good decision, you know, when I was 17, 18 in college, trying to pursue soils. So this is something that I'm passionate about and I should just stick with it. And since then, I kind of stuck with soils. I studied soils, as I mentioned, as my undergrad. My master's research was focused on land degradation, in particular land degradation caused by armed conflicts and unexploded ordinances that are left behind by war, in particular landmines. And my PhD research was on how soil regulated 
uh, regulates uh, sequestration of atmospheric carbon dioxide. And so once I got, you know, I think past the reconsider, rethink medical school phase after undergrad, I've, I've kind of stuck with soil and I didn't, didn't change much afterwards. Address different questions at different times, but mm-hmm. the interest did not change. From your PhD research, did that kind of lead into what you study today? Yeah, a lot. A lot of what I study today relates to what I did during my PhD. And so that really defined, you know, the direction that I wanted to go in. And I went even further into that during my postdoc. And many of the similar themes continue in my lab's research right now. Questions around physical perturbation in the environment and how it affects uh, soil processes, things like erosion, climate change, for example. There are a lot of new things that also, you know, new themes of research that we started in my lab after I became a professor. But, but there are some that have stayed for a long period of time. Okay, so can you tell us about what that research is about, maybe a little bit more specifically, and although it seems obvious in relation to climate change, why that's relevant to the broader public? So broadly speaking, um, the topic that my lab spends a lot of time thinking of carbon sequestration or sequestration of atmospheric carbon dioxide in soil has many, many relations with society and the broader public. Fundamentally speaking, what we're talking about is carbon that was in the atmosphere being taken out by plants during photosynthesis, and then upon death of those plants, that carbon being stored in soil, right? And the the basic idea here is that carbon is constantly being exchanged between land and the atmosphere because, you know, photosynthesis takes it out, but upon death, of living things that are made out of carbon, then that carbon goes back up into the atmosphere again as greenhouse gases. And microbes that live in soil are the ones that break down the dead residue of formerly living organisms, making it possible for that carbon to go back into the atmosphere as greenhouse gases. But what we also know is that minerals in soil are able to basically trap the carbon in inside their uh, aggregates or physical arrangements uh, in soil, or even by allowing that carbon to form chemical bonds with the surfaces of the minerals. And once the carbon finds itself in this kind of an association, its ability to go back to the atmosphere is diminished. Microbes cannot easily break it down. And so what that means is if there is more and more carbon that enters in these associations with minerals, what we call mineral organic matter associations, then it means there's more and more carbon in soil. And that then also translates to less and less carbon in the atmosphere. So this is a hugely important uh, process from a climate perspective. We want soil to be able to take up carbon from the atmosphere and store it and stabilize it in the in the soil environment so that it's not in the atmosphere where it could warm the air, right? But doesn't even the public interest or societal relevance doesn't even end there, because historically, you know, soils were fertile many in many parts of the world, right? And the fertility or native chemical and biological or physical properties of soil are what allow it to support food production, plant productivity in general. So if soil is used and abused by humans beyond its capacity, uh, like 
it's done a lot in conventional agriculture systems, it facilitates loss of large amounts of carbon that was stored in soil into the atmosphere. So that means human actions and how we treat soil actually contribute to the global warming problem is what we're talking about. But if we were to reverse that, and actually think about managing soil property in a way that actually allows it to maximize the amount of carbon that it stores. These are the practices that collectively are known as natural climate change solutions or even climate smart land management. Then if we could do that, then the soil could actually a lot of carbon from the atmosphere. And instead of contributing to climate change and warming, then it could actually help address the problem of climate change and warming. And so there's many, many different uh, climate implications. Beyond that, healthy soil is also a soil that stores a large amounts of carbon because um, carbon and organic matter in general, which is the collection of you know, biologically synthesized matter that is rich in carbon, that stored in soil actually helps soil store a lot of nutrients and water um, and all living things that call soil home, including microbes and the plants, um, need those nutrients and that water to be held in the soil so that they can thrive in their life. So addressing the soil issue in the context of climate change then is key, not just for addressing the climate change problem, but also for ensuring that we have healthy soils that can continue to provide food, nutrients, fiber, and everything else that we need uh, for our lives and the lives of every living thing on land, basically. Okay. If we think about it agriculturally, what are some things we could do to treat the soil in a way that promotes the increase of carbon? So there are many things that we could do to promote um, carbon storage in soil and contribute to uh, reduce the global warming and climate change problem. In addition to, you know, reduce tillage, um, reducing um, excessive use of agricultural chemicals, um, stopping deforestation and putting back forests whenever possible, we can also bring back carbon into the soil from current waste streams whenever possible. And these waste streams include excessive ag waste, for example, trimmings and and things like that from forests as well as agricultural fields. This could include a municipal waste. This could include manure from animal production systems. All of this that could be composted to deliver carbon that could contribute to carbon sequestration in soil. So there's many things. The good news here is that we actually know a lot about these practices because they've been part of healthy soil management practices for generations at this point. And we have fairly good understanding of their potential to sequester atmospheric carbon. And we know that they can deliver a third of the climate mitigation that we need in a cost-effective manner. But We have to implement them, and we have to implement them at the scale that is needed globally. What is something specific that you're really excited about in your research right now? There's a number of projects in our lab that I think are just exciting at this point. There's this theme that we're working on right now. Maybe I'll talk about one on deep soil carbon. So this basically question gets to how deep is soil? is this fundamental question that 
soil scientists have grappled with for a long period of time because it's hard to predict how deep a soil is in one area versus another because we know soil depth and soil production varies uh, you know as a factor of multiple variables and this topic and this question became relevant for carbon sequestration when we started realizing that a lot of the estimates that we have about carbon and how much carbon the soil is storing is actually based on extrapolation of results from the very top uh, layer of the soil. This is the easiest to sample, obviously, right? But it turns out there's a lot of variability on soil depth, and that affects how much carbon is actually stored in different layers in in, in soil. And, and that deep soil can contribute significantly to carbon storage. And it also has this potential to potentially stabilize carbon for a long period of time, but doesn't necessarily mean that once carbon enters, you know, a meter depth or two meter depth, it's just going to last there forever. We're learning that it's a, still a dynamic pool. It just cycles a little slower, but we still don't understand very well about how slow and why and the fundamental mechanisms that make that so and how human practices including putting in place these deep-rooted perennial systems, for example, that contribute to deep carbon, so deep soil carbon storage, how they can allow the soils to maintain a large carbon stock and things like that. And so we have a theme across, you know, this deep soil topic in the lab right now, multiple research projects looking into this um, from many different angles, including plant carbon input to soil, microbial processing of that carbon, mean residence time, quantifying how long carbon actually stays in deep soil across different areas, and how much the amount of carbon that we know is in soil and our estimates would actually increase if we considered the real depth of soil and if we actually dug deep to find out how much carbon is there, what does it look like chemically speaking, so in terms of its composition, and how long has it been sitting there? And why, obviously. So these questions yeah. are ones that we find very fascinating in the lab at this point. Um, and we have many, you know, multiple studies looking at this from multiple angles at this point. Can you give one example or maybe two examples of how you're investigating that? Do you have a combination of field research and modeling that you're applying to the situation? or? Yeah, it's always a combination of approaches in this case. And... Um, so there's a lot of field work in collaboration with geoscientists and pedologists or people who study soil development to first characterize the depth of soil. So when I mean deep soil, I mean, in some cases, soil that could extend in depth past 10 meters. So as you can imagine, sampling that is a is a fun exercise. Um, <laughs> yeah. Take fun with a lot of right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, potential <laughs> type meaning. two it, fun. It is, it is still fun, but it's also you know not necessarily an easy task, and it requires collaborations and resources to be able to take undisturbed course from ten meters below the surface, and be able to then you know bring it back into the lab characterize it uh, with advanced spectroscopic tools that basically allow us. So what you do here is you you rely on how light interacts with matter to tell you about the composition of the material. 
So we've used approaches called Fourier transformed um, infrared spectroscopy in particular, and uh, to look at the chemical composition of the organic matter. And then we work with collaborators in particular in nearby government labs to use this method called the accelerator max spectroscopy that allows us to date the carbon. So to think about how old the carbon in these layers is. So we're finding, for example, that the carbon in these deep soil layers sometimes can be up to 20,000 years old. That's very, very old for any kind of carbon in soil because, as I mentioned in the beginning, carbon cycles rather fast, right? So for carbon molecules to be preserved in soil for 20,000 years is a pretty big deal. And so we have those kinds of studies going on right now that we think are giving incredibly exciting results. What are some ways in which you have overcome adversity throughout your career? To think about, you know, how have I overcome adversity in my academic journey? I think it's fair to say that grad school and an academic journey in general is complicated uh, for everyone. It takes a lot of persistence. Persistence is important because there's all sorts of obstacles that people might find on their path um, in an academic career or even just graduate school in general. So I, I start by that recognition and then add to the fact that I'm a woman in geosciences and I'm also a black woman in geosciences and I'm also a black woman in geosciences from Africa. I was born and raised in Africa. That means people come with also all sorts of preconceptions about what my potential, what I can and cannot do, what can't you know rightfully achieve versus how there's no way I would be able to do any of this in X or Y and Z things because of my background. Even when I'm attending you know one of the most prestigious schools and learning from some of the top people in the field, that somehow that's just impossible. Somebody with my background would achieve anything remotely, you know, that, you know, some people would find excellent, I guess, if you say in terms of productivity or uh, potential or things like that. So all of that is the kind of distraction that people unfortunately encounter in academic paths, especially if you look like me and if you have the kind of background that I have. But still was able to persist and complete my studies and and be where I am right now. And a big credit to that goes to my family that was always there to support me, that instilled in me this idea that I could do anything. I, I should, as long as I keep learning and I keep, you know, pushing myself that I could achieve whatever I, I wanted as long as I was willing to work hard for it. And then I was fortunate after some stumbling blocks in my path in academia because of the kind of issues that I described, I was fortunate enough to find mentors who were there for me, who were always uh, willing to support me and help me learn and shield me from a lot of these distractions because of people's preconceptions, if you will. And that makes a difference. And I think so right now, when anybody asks me what advice I would give to early career scholars and graduate students and postdocs, one of the most important advice I want to leave them with all the time is find yourself a community, a supportive community of folks who value your path, your background, and who will be there for you to support you in all sorts of different ways.
all of us need support in one way or another in our path. And having a supportive community of folks, including your peers and your senior PIs and things like that, makes a world of difference. A friend of mine likes to say that science is a team sport. Choose your team wisely. And I just love that that expression. It captures it so well. I love that. You can't that. do this alone. <laughs> you can't do this alone and surround yourself with the, the right community. So relevant to what's been going on in the United States and the increased awareness or attention to the Black Lives Matter movement and everything, you recently, or maybe it was coincidental, but you recently co-authored an article entitled 10 Simple Rules for Building an Anti-Racist Lab with Dr. Bala Shadhari. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that resource that you put together, how that came to be, and how it promotes us to actively advocate for inclusion in earth sciences and other academic spaces. So yeah, so Bala and I put out this article, 10 Simple Rules for Building an Anti-Racist Lab, recently after the Black Lives Movement protests and after the killing of George Floyd and the countless other Black people at the hands of police and after, you know, the community as a whole had an awakening, right, that this is stuff that keeps happening and somehow it just doesn't stop, doesn't change. And so there's a lot of discussion about what should we do in in every sphere, in every kind of institution that we find ourselves in. And many institutions were spurred to try and do something. Uh, but there was a little, lot of discussion about, but what could we do? Because structural racism is such a big issue. No one individual can address it, right? We need a collective reckoning with this issue of race, of slavery and racism and the legacies of slavery and racism in the country. And so there were some that really looked at this issue and said, it's too daunting. There's not much we could do unless the collective, you know, the government that represents us all is behind it, that there's legislation and things like that. Clearly, Bella and I are in the community that thinks that we all could play a role. Yes, there are big structural issues that we need the powerful folks in society and governments and institutions to be able to do, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility individually in our groups, in our own communities, in our homes, to even influence our own behaviors. So we, this was Bala, this was actually Bala's idea initially when she reached out to me and said, hey, what do you think about um, us putting together a resource like this? I instantly said, yes, this is just perfect idea and perfect moment because all of these ideas are in everybody's head at the time, right? But I want to start by mentioning that when we say 10 simple rules for building anti-racist lab, we don't mean that the demolishing racism and structural racism in general is structural racism and even the legacies of slavery and the, how it impacts society is actually simple, that you could just break down by these 10 rules, right? The point is that the PLOS computational biology has this format of publications that they put out with these 10 simple rules idea. And what it allows people to say is, I think, Drop all the excuses that you can't make a difference, right? Think of simple things you can do today 
tomorrow in your group, in your institutions, to make a difference for people that are there or people that are trying to enter into your profession, into your institution. And so that's what these 10 simple rules are. It's not meant to say, and we clarify this in the article, that issues of racism are simple or just adopting anti-racist policies are simple. And the, another important point this uh, the article made is also thinking that Plenty of people would tell you they're not racist. They don't think of, they don't, you know, they don't look things through a, a race lens or that they're colorblind. And that's kind of meaningless, right? Because there's no such thing that I'm not racist. You either allow racism to, you know, happen in society, even if it's not you that's practicing, or you actively fight against it. There's no neutral stance in the issue of um, racism. Uh, these are real human lives we're talking about. You either actively think about how you dismantle the system that actually discriminates against certain individuals, or you're an active bystander or participant in what's happening. So you, you have to choose which side. And an anti-racist side, I assume, is where most people would prefer to be and would work to want to be. And so this is a guide for people who might not have learned a lot about the anti-racist theory that Ibrahim Kendi and others have been working on, or even other really important scholarship on race and racism. So we just provide a little bit of a, a starting point, if you will, for conversations. And that's what these 10 rules are meant to be to allow us to think critically about the biases that we hold, how we run our lives, how we run our institutions, and how we can make a difference in the process in diversifying academia, which has been notorious for the lack of diversity, really from the beginning. Right. So can you give an example of one of those actionable items, or one of the quote-unquote simple rules that you mentioned. That said, I will put a link to the article in the description. Yeah, so maybe I can name a couple and elaborate for you. Mm -hmm. So for example, you have plenty of people in particular in the geosciences and ecology and related fields who go out and study, you know, land, beautiful land, geologically speaking, somewhere that either belongs to a native community or is even internationally in a place where black and brown people call home. They go there, they study the system, they come back, they publish papers, great papers that are scientifically speaking published in the most prominent journals. And then you look at the author list and you don't notice a single a native scholar or native you know, scientist that helped them or even a black or brown scientist scholar that they would have collaborated with. And that says to you many different things. You cannot possibly go into somebody else's area and learn without really learning the scholarship that folks there that have developed, right? Or you're cherry picking who you're wish you know who you're trying to learn from if you only you learn from some uh, white people that have studied that area before and you ignore everything that the native communities have done and you go there you use the native communities for manual labor for example to help you get there to help you do this but you never actually involve them in the science but then you write 
broader impact statements for NSF and other grants that say that you're actually include going to include participation of underrepresented scholars or students or trainees and that you're going to train them on research methods, but you exclude them from the most important product that matters for any scientist's growth. Because the biggest difference you could make in the lives of the underrepresented scholars that you involved in your research is to actually give them an opportunity to make intellectual contributions to the science, grow intellectually in you know their science, their their knowledge and their contribution. But you reserve that to you and to your group. But but the manual labor, and you know you maybe involve some. And sometimes um, the folks that allow you to do that work don't even show up in acknowledgments, let alone in other parts of your manuscript. That in its, That's a very disturbing thing that you notice all the time in people who do natural history, geoscience, ecology, related work, and ag- agriculture and things like that. Right, and that's so, active exploitation. That is exploitation, and it's an extractive way of doing science, right? You just take away from them, but you never really give back in a major way. And that's a disturbing trend that many people have gotten very, very comfortable with. And so rule number three says, if you really want to make a difference, make sure you're publishing papers and writing grants with Black and Indigenous people of color, your own colleagues, as well as the people that you're trying to work with in other places. And the other thing that many people could do, in particular once you have job security in academic institutions, is to advocate for racially diverse leadership in science because leadership matters, demographics matters, a demographic of an institution, both in the general population of that institution as well as in the leadership, is an important window into the culture, the inclusion practices equity that's going on at that institution. So if you have the power and prestige, you know, yeah, you could use with whatever institution that you're part of, use it to advocate for racially diverse leadership so that we don't keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. We actually change the path. And make sure you hold the powerful accountable. Scientists around the U.S., for example, have written for 40 years, 50 years about in their proposals that are funded by federal funds that are uh, financed by very diverse population of taxpayers. Mm -hmm. They've written proposal after proposal that state they're going to improve representation of underrepresented minority scholars. But looking back, there's a paper in in Nature Geoscience a couple of years ago that looked at the data on the last 40 years when there's been so many efforts and so much funding going towards diversifying the geosciences, for example, and how much difference that has that made in the diversity of who's holding faculty positions, who's holding leadership positions in our community. And we haven't really seen any change. 40 years. At some point, there has to be accountability. We have to hold the powerful accountable to account for what happened to all these resources. Where did these all these efforts do? And why is it that they're not making a difference the way they were intended to, right? It's because we've refused to address the climate issues in our own institutions that push people out. We keep talking about pipeline, not having enough people in the pipeline. And at best, that's become a distraction, this pipeline discussion. At worst, it's actually an effort to evade the, the real issue that pushes 
black and brown people from actually being part of academic institutions. These discussions are very, very, they should make us uncomfortable, I should say. They should make us uncomfortable because this is a very disturbing topic and a very disturbing results that we're dealing with and very disturbing impacts on human lives. It should shock us, hopefully, into realizing of how serious this issue is. And into action. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. And um, where can we find you on social media? So uh, my favorite platform, social media for interaction, and in particular things having to do with academic scholarly kind of community is Twitter. Um, A-A-B-E-R-H-E. Uh, my middle first and middle name initials and my last name at Twitter. Okay, great. That's, and also, that's also my website at aaberhead.com, my okay. research website. Great. I was just yeah. going to ask that. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It was lovely speaking with you. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Getting to chat with Asma about her soils, carbon, and climate research and her advocacy for actively practicing anti-racism in the academic and lab environment was an absolute privilege. I've put a link to the paper by Dr. Berhe and Dr. Shadhari referenced in the interview and her social media handles in the episode description. And I encourage you to do your part in listening and learning about how each of us is important to dismantling the systemic racism pervasive in academic environments and society at large. Check out our website at letsdosomethingbig.weebly.com or follow us on Instagram at LDSBIG. Thanks for listening and have an educational day. Content was produced and edited by Mariama Dryak. The cover art for the We Persist podcast is created by Emma Henry, and the music for today's episode is from Purple Planet Music.